Hey, Top News listeners, this is Luke Garrett. And Megan Cloherty. We're the hosts of WTOP's daily local news podcast, The DMV Download. Don't worry, top news from WTOP isn't going away, but we wanted to drop in and give you a taste of what we're producing, a podcast that goes deeper into the biggest stories of the day. If you like what you hear, head over to the DMV Download podcast and subscribe. It's Wednesday, October 12th. From inside the WTOP newsroom, this is the DMV Download, brought to you by the men and women of Steamfitters Local 602. Get an estimate and learn more at steamfitters-602.org. Today, as the Smithsonian's most popular museum, Air and Space, is set to reopen Friday, we get a private tour of what to look out for in the new exhibits with museum director and top gun school graduate, Christopher Brown. Yeah, this is the X-Wing Starfighter from the movie Rise of Skywalker. And Brown says that we're at a pivotal moment in space exploration and that our past can tell us about our future. What we see now is we are living in the golden age of space. Plus, another round of DMV dates with a special guest from the newsroom. Thanks for joining us. I'm Megan Cloherty. And I'm Luke Garrett. When it reopens to the public on Friday morning, the world's most popular museum will have a lot more to offer to those who've been to the Air and Space Museum before. For the highlights, Luke got an exclusive private tour with the museum's director. Here we are in the renovated Air and Space Museum. This is in the West Wing, the portion that's opening up on October 14th. I'm here with director Chris Brown. So Chris, are you excited? Absolutely, this is the culmination of years of work starting back probably in 2015 when the Smithsonian and the museum was able to determine that the building's infrastructure needed to be completely replaced. And it grew into a project, the scale of which uh, had not been accomplished before, but we're here ready to open to the public on Friday and we couldn't be more excited. So we're walking here on the second level of this West Wing and I'm seeing a plane from Star Wars. <laughs> tell, tell me what I'm seeing. Yeah, this is the X-Wing Starfighter from the movie Rise of Skywalker. It is indeed a movie prop, but we've got it configured and hanging in a way that is particularly uh, exciting and compelling with the star field behind it in front of our planetarium. And some visitors would say, well, why this artifact here now? And part of the mission of the museum is to inspire particularly younger generation to meet our visitors where they are. And, and we know the iconic value of things like movie props. And so we thought that we would share this uh, for our audience, knowing full well that others will come and want to see the aircraft and spacecraft. So we have an offering of lots of different artifacts, and this is just one new to the building. In fact, almost half of the artifacts now in the West Wing here are in the building for the first time. And I love the connection you know, between fiction and nonfiction, right? I mean, these movies, Star Wars, inspired real people that did real things later on. Yes, absolutely. You'll see in some of our exhibits where we actually have the games, the board games, the models that young astronauts, young pilots were playing with as children, which served as inspiration for their, their pursuit uh, in their various careers and accomplishments. And so we know the power of these, these iconic objects. And... Um, and it, they're inspirational, perhaps not to everybody, but we do know that in the case of the X-Wing Starfighter here, there will be audiences that will be thrilled to see it on display for the first time, an actual movie flown, flown in parentheses artifact. <laughs> of course, uh, uh, it did not fly, and some folks have said, well, why do you have things in the museum that haven't flown? And 
I remind them that we have over 6,000 paintings in the museum that haven't flown. So let's move forward here to kind of the hangar. I'm not sure if that's its official name, but it's really that iconic place where planes are just suspended by wires. Are these new planes or will viewers kind of recognize these from years past? Well, in America by Air Gallery, which you're looking into at the moment, visitors will recognize these planes as, as having been in the uh, building previously, most of them. Um, of course, they all had to get disassembled and removed for the work to proceed. But uh, these are each with their own story, their own iconic uh, value and provenance, and which warrants their inclusion in the national collection. When I first visited this museum a year after it opened in 1977, I was 19 years old and that DC-3 was the artifact, the object that most resonated with me. It was so compelling to see such a large artifact literally hanging from the ceiling. And please share with our you know, listeners, inspired you to a career of flying. Yeah, within a year I got my private pilot's license um, and then decided I wanted to stay at it and continued to uh, join the Navy after college and flew F-14s in the Navy for a number of years and then uh, managed airports, uh, Reagan and, and Dulles, over the course of a 30-year career and am now blessed to be able to be here at the National Air and Space Museum to serve as its director. This renovation has brought us new exhibits. We're really going to focus on two, the first of which is Destination Moon, which is right to our left, so let's, let's make way. And, you know, as we enter this Destination Moon, and no, this is not the 1950s sci-fi movie with the same name, you know, tell us what's important and notable about this Destination Moon exhibit. Well, it is an all-new exhibit, but it's many of the artifacts that have been in the collection and were previously on display in the former gallery, Apollo to the Moon. And when that opened with the building in 76, all of the visitors to that gallery were, they knew Apollo. In fact, Apollo was, was very recent memory. And so it was a different kind of a story to tell, I suppose. Today, most of the visitors walking into this gallery will not have been alive during Apollo. So when we hear a term like moonshot that the president uses, what does moonshot mean to a generation that's not familiar with Apollo? And so part of that is a story that we try to tell here, which is how can an incredibly bold vision as, as set forth by President Kennedy manifest itself? We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one. Zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. With great investment, great resource by the country, incredible ingenuity, a tolerance for risk, all the ingredients you need to solve really complex and vexing problems, whether it's putting a person on the moon or solving cancer or addressing climate change. So we see this galleries being incredibly relevant to the conversations we're having today, but it also celebrates certainly one of the most remarkable events of the 20th century. And as we're walking through, you know, this Destination Moon exhibit, we see a lot of re-entry vehicles into, you know, Earth, and we see a lot of space suits, and they're paired together. Why is it important that these, you know, space suits and, you know, re-entry vehicles, capsules, are reunited now here? As you note here in the case of uh, Freedom 7, the Mercury spaceship that uh, capsule that took Alan Shepard. I feel the liftoff. The clock has started. Uh, right here. 
uh, didn't even orbit, put, took him into space, first American to do so, to pair with the spacesuit is actually, I think, for the first time we've actually been able to do that. It wasn't enough just to sort of get in the capsule and close the door. Uh, even within the capsule, it was a very harsh environment. So suits were, of course, needed. I actually think of spacesuits, particularly the later versions with where the astronauts were using them to spacewalk and so forth and walk on the moon, are really spacecraft. They're multiple layers, up to 21 layers of handmade, hand-stitched materials that, once, once put together, serve as protection for an astronaut from micrometeorites, radiation, all the things that a spacecraft does. And so it's, the spacesuit story is uh, a remarkable one in itself. And in one of the things we show in this gallery are the people. We highlight the people that made those spacesuits, who are largely women with the ILC Corporation, who literally hand-stitched these spacesuits uh, that allowed our astronauts to survive. Now, moving on to the second set of you know, re-entry vehicles and space suits, we have the iconic you know, first spacesuit on the moon. You know, this one looks very different from the Mercury suit we just mentioned. It's all white. There's, a, there's some moon dust stains on the knees of this, of this spacesuit. It's a little bulkier, bigger, and it's Armstrong's suit. Yep, this is the suit that Neil Armstrong wore when he took his first steps on the moon. I'm going to step off the limb now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're very lucky here at the Air and Space Museum to have the collection uh, of the most iconic objects from that period, not the least being this suit. And as you know, uh, it's gray in many areas because of moon dust that is embedded into the fibers to this day and always will be. And what we have here is a specially designed case to ensure that this suit lasts as long as possible. You know, there's natural states of decay uh, that occur, but our conservationists and others have done everything to design this case, the lighting, the atmospherics within the case and so forth so that visitors will be able to witness this in person for decades and decades to come. Moving on towards the end of this Destination Moon exhibit, you mentioned that this exhibit highlights not only the men and women who you know, made it to space and were in the newspapers, but also the people that made this possible, the seamstresses, all the laborers you know, who built these incredible apparatuses. What's important are the stories behind the artifacts. These are human stories. And when Kennedy put out his bold vision, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. That vision, for folks that were listening to it at the time, perhaps engineers and others, it was pretty crazy because we had barely uh, successfully even gotten into space, uh, knew very little about orbital mechanics, uh, the things that needed to be developed, the materials, um, all the things that had to come together in order to make it happen. Over 400,000 Americans uh, worked together with an incredible resource by the country to make all this possible. Moving now toward the nation of speed, air and space obviously has two kind of main phenomenon it looks into, space and air. And to go into the air, you know, you need speed. <laughs> you need significant speed. Absolutely. And the quest to go faster plays out in our society in so many ways. 
Um, it was certainly important in the aviation space, but that's, that's not where it ends. And so we wanted to tell the, the overall story, the entire story uh, of something that, while not uniquely American, it is something that has uh, very much been part of the American DNA, if I may, starting from the earliest ages. So as you go into this gallery, just to your left, you'll see some of the earliest toys we played with as kids. So for instance, uh, for those that may have been Cub Scouts, a race car, handmade race car for the Pinewood Derby. And then of course we advance well beyond that to show artifacts uh, that have played out in our lives and continue to today as we try to go faster. And as I look into this gallery, I see uh, a metal red seat with literal rockets just strapped on the back of it. It just looks like a rocket seat. That's all I can describe it. But it has an official name, of course, Sonic Wind Number 1, a fitting name. Tell us about this contraption. Sure. As we started to go faster, uh, and it particularly was true in the aerospace sector, we needed to learn more and more about the impacts of speed and g-forces on the human body, the physiology associated with going faster. And so what this sled, as we call it, rocket sled, uh, did was actually propel, in this case, John Stapp, to a speed of over 630 miles an hour in just a matter of five seconds. The fastest man on Earth scorches down a metal track aboard a spectacular rocket sled at Holloman Air Force Base, New Mexico, in the first of a series of tests of pilot safety equipment. What you'll see on the video uh, that we have as one of our interactives, the actual impact of those incredible G-forces on his actual facial features. And so, uh, one of the things that accrues out of this kind of early research play out in our other parts of our society to include airbags and seat restraints mm. in cars. And so this is where the aerospace, things being done and developed for aerospace, really uh, move into other parts of our society. We saw it certainly with the Apollo program, but we even see it here with the Sonic Wind number one rocket sled because what John Stapp experienced, as I mentioned, became an engineering goal for the development of safety in vehicles. Visitors will see these photos of his face kind of contorted, really, as G-forces are exerted onto him as he's going at these incredible, incredible forces and speeds. They'll remember seeing this in the latest Top Gun Maverick movie, you know, when Tom Cruise or Maverick was going up to 10 Gs uh, or tries to surpass that. And, you know, there's a film of him, just his face just contorting. Can you explain at all, like, what's moving the face? Like, what's happening? Well, the, the actual force against your body is, is, is doubling, tripling, quadrupling the actual weight of, of your body. And so whether it's for space flight uh, or, or even a roller coaster at a theme park, people will feel that effect of G-force. Now, a roller coaster may be one and a half, maybe two Gs, I suspect. But when you get into aircraft and you're going six, seven, eight, nine sustained Gs, it really becomes a question of what can the body tolerate and what are the things that you can design so that human physiology can withstand high G-forces wherever they play out, whether it's in a car, in the course of an accident, you know, there's a lot of lateral G if you're driving and suddenly hit a wall or a pole. And so those are the protecting against that is what things like airbags and restraint devices are designed to do. 
and uh, you actually went to the Top Gun Academy. Does the movie do it justice? Any takes on that movie? Did you see it, actually, first of all? I went through the school right before the first Top Gun movie, and uh, this, this most recent one, Top Gun Maverick, uh, in many ways, I think, is better than the first. The flying scenes are really authentic for the actual actors themselves. They were in the back seats of, uh, of uh, F-18s. Whereas in the case of the first movie, the actors were actually sort of in uh, cockpits with uh, green screen behind them and so forth. So the, this Maverick has a lot of authenticity to it. Those flying scenes are flown by Navy pilots um, for a movie, of course, but doing maneuvers that is what they're trained to typically do. So as we exit this exhibit and get to the end of our conversation here, you know, the image that comes to me, it's one of my favorite images, it's called uh, Earth rising and it was taken you know by one of the first astronauts to get to the moon and the reflection of the astronaut that took that photo was you know we traveled all this way to get to the moon but when I look back at earth I see that all that's good is really you know earth and that begs the question you know is space exploration worth it when we have an earth to you know protect well, absolutely. I mean, I think in one gallery, One World Connected, we see how the advance is done with just things like satellites, GPS, the things that are have evolved because of our exploration in space have really created technologies that let us better understand ourselves, sort of outside looking in, in that perspective that Bill Anders from Apollo 8 so eloquently stated, as you said, he, basically, he essentially said, we went to the moon and discovered our Earth. Oh my God, look at that picture over there. There's the Earth coming up. Wow, that pretty. You got a color film, Jim? Hand me a roll of color quick. Oh you? man, that's great. Quick. And with that picture of the Earth rise, that was became the cover on Whole Earth Catalog, which arguably started the environmental movement. So much of what we know, for instance, about climate change today mm. is, is validated by a lot of the advances that we're able to uh, confirm and uh, deploy through our aerospace technology. So whether it's the, the, handhold, the, the hand phone, the phone you have and the technology in it or others, the, the advances in technology that that are the result of exploration with aviation and aerospace play out in our daily lives all the time and frankly in ways that we take for granted. Which brings to mind Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk who have respectively Blue Origin and SpaceX which are really at the forefront of space exploration, space tourism, uh, things that we didn't really know were possible a while ago. So what is the future of space as we look across this past of space? Well, I think actually the story starts in this America by Air Gallery where you see some of the early aircraft that we refer to as a golden age of aviation where aviation really came to its fore and became accessible to the public and and it was no longer just uh, the delivery of the mail or barnstorming. And so we, we think retrospectively we talk about the golden age of flight. What we see now is we are living in the golden age of space, where because of Blue Origin, SpaceX, and other companies, um, we are now seeing access into space, whether it's for travelers or for satellites, um, expanding exponentially, and it's happening right now before our eyes. And one of the things that we're interested in as a, as a museum is how do we tell that story? And it starts by collecting. So we're very interested, for instance, 
in the in getting down from the space station artifacts that we want to display in this museum because the space station is going to be deorbited and crash into the sea uh, in 2030. And so these are incredible stories that we're living today. Uh, and so we want to be um, mindful of that and to tell those stories uh, for future generations. I know there's an exhibit that, you know, is still not open to the public, and there are many exhibits that are still aren't open. There's much you know, left to be redeveloped and rebuilt. Tell us about that timeline and what visitors can expect for more of the Air and Space Museum to open up. We've got eight galleries that will open on Friday, but in all, when the project's completed, there'll be 23. And so work continues apace on the other half of the building. Actually below us, there's a gallery, the Alan Shelley Holt Gallery, the Innovations Gallery, which we hope to open in about a year and a half. And that will showcase on a rotating basis 18-month, 24-month exhibits. The first one will be on, for instance, climate change. The the next one to follow that will be on drones and uncrewed flight. So we want to make sure that we keep things contemporary and exciting for our audiences. But uh, this is a taste of what's to come. And the entire project will be done in uh, around the summer of 25. Director Chris Brown, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate this walk-around tour. Thank you. This is a privilege and pleasure to be able to do this and encourage your listeners to come see what is a national treasure in their own backyard. Thanks again. Uh, do you think we missed anything? Anything you're like, oh, oh there's like oh, there's a so thousand much. things we missed, <laughs> but, uh, you know, no. And as you hear there, Brown really thinks there was so much more to talk about, and he's right. I mean, there were so many artifacts we wanted to talk about, but, you know, we only had 20 minutes, so we couldn't spend 20 hours talking about every single piece. that's the thing. You go in that museum, and you come out, like, five hours later, like, you know, lost for time. Reserve a day, folks. It's going to take a day. Exactly. And actually, coming up for you guys after the break, we have more DC culture for you on the DMV Date segment. Backed by the experience of its hardworking members, Steamfitters Local 602 is ready to take on your next commercial heating, cooling, HVAC, or refrigeration project. Steamfitters Local 602 adds value to our community through its partnerships with local contractors and building owners, all while keeping the focus on improving the lives of its members and their families throughout the DMV. For work that's on time and on budget, go to steamfitters-602.org to schedule your next project. That's steamfitters-602.org. Steamfitters Local 602 changing lives. I'm Paul Wagner. Join me as I dig deep into the mysterious case of the Potomac River Rapist. Listen to Unknown Subject, Season 3 of WTOP's award-winning American Nightmare podcast series, available now wherever you get your podcasts. And before we go, as you know, it's Wednesday, and that means... Another great segment of DMV Dates. Let's go. And today we have Scott Gelman from the newsroom in with me to chat because Luke kind of took over the whole show. So we had to kind of kick him out. I'm just honored to be inc- <laughs> I'm just honored to be included in this segment. Like we're not talking about some serious news story, but nope. something a little bit lighter. I'm very excited for that part. All right. So I'm gonna start. My date is in DC. Um and I think actually we're both in DC today. Yes. So, you know, you're gonna have to come into town for this one. But so this is this is my date. It starts on U Street with a walking tour of the DC Murals Project. Wow. Okay, so apparently, you know there's murals like all over the city, right? Right. Um, A couple years ago, probably like 10 years ago now, the DC Department of Public Works had this thing they said was like call for walls. And people could put in an application and say, I want a mural on my wall. You have to own the property to do it. Okay. So there's hundreds of them now. 
And on U Street, there's a specific like walking tour. You can go to this um, murals DC project and they have a map. And you do the walking tour and it tells you all about the artist, like what the design was, whatever. So you're kind of walking with your date, you're chatting, you're, you know, bopping around town. And then when you get to the end of the uh, U Street corridor, hop on the metro and you go up to Petworth. And that is where you will find Hook Hall's Rock the Core Hard Cider and Brew Festival. Festival. Yeah, it's a festival. 30 ciders, many named after the apples, Granny Smith and Golden Russet. There's two different times. There's a 2 o'clock to 4.30 and a 6 o'clock to 8.30. There's like a fall market. There's music. It's going to be awesome. $25 a ticket. So, I mean, and the and the walking is free. So it's, what, 50 bucks for kind of a long date, actually, like a four-hour date. You're assuming that's a good date. <laughs> like, that has to be because if the walking part doesn't go well, you're not making it to Hook Hall. That could be problematic. Well, that's okay. It's, it's, it's two parts. So if you get to the end of the murals and you're like, mm, this isn't working out. Have a nice that. day. I yeah. love that. But if it's going well, then you go up to Hook Hall. And actually, just a quick thing about Hook Hall. They're one of the organizations during the pandemic that, like, banded together for the restaurant industry and were giving out, like, free meals and helping people pay their rent who were in the industry who got, you know, laid off or furloughed. So they're a huge, like, I don't know, restaurant industry driver for the city. So it's cool to support them. Giving back. I love that. Exactly. All right, Scott, you're up. Also D.C. Three, okay. This is a three-parter, which is – that's that's questionable because what happens is if the first part doesn't go well, do you make it to the second part? But right. it's a three-parter. Okay. So here we go. So you start at the Commodore in DuPont Circle. <laughs> okay. Great dive bar, great music, perfect this time of year, simple just for a drink, just, you know, casual yeah. conversation, right, right, right. Yeah. start the date off well, right? And then you walk to my favorite D.C. museum. So my favorite DC museum used to be the Newseum, RIP. Now it's Johns oh, Hopkins offices. Yeah. And so this this museum has taken over. So it's the Planet Word Museum. Planet Word. Which is in the old Franklin School. Building. I have never been. And neither of many people in the newsroom. And this baffles me. Yeah, that's because this weird. is the, this is <laughs> it's not Smithsonian, but it is a great museum for people who love words. And we're all journalists. How do we not love words? Right. Yeah. We great all play Wordle for, every day. Well, right. People who love to read, people who love word origins. This is super dorky, but super fun, right? Yeah, so here's yeah. the thing. So you could give a donation. It's recommended. So when you're talking about cost, $5, $10, whatever you feel oh, so appropriate. so the tickets are free, but you kind of make a donation. Right. Okay, so we're talking it. about maybe $10 there after a $10 beer or rail drink because they frequently cost in D.C. Right. And so the fun fact about the Planet Word Museum is they say they are the only museum in the country focused on renewing and inspiring a love of words and language. Aww. And it is very interactive, which is my other favorite part about the Planet Word that, Museum. That was my next question, because is it just like, you know, words on posters? Right, so it's not. So I don't want to give too much away, but it is very interactive with videos. There's a room full of iPads. There's a one big exhibit that talks about the root of words and oh, cool. origin and super interactive and colorful. And it's it's wow. a fun experience. Like, there's a lot to do. We're talking about if things are going well on this date, we're talking about a two-hour time period at the Planet Word Museum. It's a good time. Is that because you and your girlfriend have spent three hours at the Planet Word Museum? It's not quite three (laughs) hours, but we have spent some good time at the Planet Word Museum. I love it. Okay. And what more convenient than the immigrant food restaurant attached to the Planet Word Museum to finish off the date? No kidding. Okay. Food from around the world. Love it. Words. Drinks. (laughs) Three-parter. And hopefully there's a second date afterward. 
<laughs> Actually, I, I do like these these dates where there's, what do you call it? Emergency exits off the... <laughs> mm, yeah. No, in the that's middle key. of the date. That's like, key. You know, if it, it goes well, great. If it doesn't, okay. You have to build them that way. Yeah. At least that's my experience. Yeah. You're not driving out. A lot of ours have been like you drive out to the middle of Virginia and go on a hike, and you're really in it then. Then you're committed. You're- <laughs> and you're stuck. And then it's a silent ride back. And, you know, you don't want that to happen. Oh, man. Okay, I, I think I might take you up on that day at the Planet Word Museum. That sounds fun. You should do it. You'd like it. All right, well, maybe that's a weekend idea for me. And that'll do it for us for the DMV download. We'll bring Luke back in. Hey, I'm back. This show <laughs> is brought to you by Steamfitters Local 602. Our managing editor is Craig Schwab, and our music is by Real World. Leave us a review and rate our show if you get the chance, and check out some of the photos we have from the Air and Space exhibits um, on our website, WTOP.com. You can become a VIP listener at DMVdownload.com. <laughs> The DMV Download is a product of WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in the D.C. area, 107.7 FM in Virginia, 103.9 FM in Frederick, Maryland, online at WTOP.com, and on the WTOP News app. Have a good night, and we'll see you tomorrow.